Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Dalibor Rohaj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by Giselle Donnelly, also at the American Enterprise Institute, and Yulia Zoja with the Middle East Institute and Georgetown University. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have emerged along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Juana Serafim, the former director of the Moldovan service at Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Liberty. If you enjoy this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. I think it's only appropriate to turn to Yulia as the Black Sea, Romania, <laughs> Moldova expert on our crew to introduce our guest and to frame the conversation. So without any further ado, over to you, Julia. Yes, so I'm thrilled. Um, I'm still just like on our last episode sitting in Bucharest, but this time I have Juana Serafim with me and Daribor, you were so kind to flatter me. If we are to compare ourselves, she is um, here at least at these lands, a bit of a legend. Um, she was uh, with Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty for th 27 years, um, directing the Moldova service, reopening much necessary the Romania service. And now she's back in Bucharest and freshly returned from a trip to Moldova with, from what I just heard from her, a fabulous Moldovan wedding. Connoisseurs know what we're talking about. Um, it lasted apparently from 4 p.m. to 8 a.m. Um, and continued the next day. But um, she's also heard some very important and interesting observations that I'm hoping she will share with us when it comes to how people in this corner of the Eastern Front feel about the war, how they look at Russia, and how they're looking at the United States. And perhaps we can start just with that. Um, before we started our podcast, Juana and I were chatting about feelings vis-a-vis -vis the United States and Romania and Moldova and beyond in the region, and the level of knowledge, I guess, when it comes to who is the United States and its role. I know last time um, on our podcast, we talked about how confused people to me are feeling here when it comes to different roles and um, different objectives of, um, of sort of the two worrying parties. But um, I'm hoping that Juana will help us make sense of how she sees um, the I guess the image of the West here, um, what people think about the support that the West is giving to Ukraine and how people relate to Ukraine and the war. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and uh, to have the freedom to speak as a pensioner who is looking to the life around uh, without uh, with a much more freedom than usually people people have. So, um, yes, uh, it's a very interesting moment, I would say, for the Eastern Europe. And I will have here the opinion of a poor Eastern European. 
and this is that uh, what's going on in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine is showing us that we, the Easterners, did our lesson. Uh, Ukraine and Zelensky made a huge surprise to the West. People are fighting for things which a bit farther away seems to be already for a lifetime. We, the Easterners, we know that freedom, democracy had to be defended. And unfortunately, even with the arms. And uh, while the debate about the arms in the United States has to do with the security of the children in the school and has another kind of level of the discussion, we in the East, in this moment, we are looking to the arms as a chance to defend really what was 30 years ago our dream, at least the dream of my generation who was in the street in 1989 and in 90 and hoping for when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed for a better life and finally a restoring of uh, democratic values also in this part of the of the world so from this perspective i must admit that uh, i share i think the most common easterner perspective about um, what we are doing in this moment not me and not the romanians in this moment but ukrainians we are in a week when uh, so at the end of this month, for Moldova, it will be a very important decision which will be having to be taken in Brussels about uh, giving them the chance to open finally the official uh, kind of candidacy for becoming pro- uh, part of European Union. And this is something that... Uh, Generations of Moldovans, Basarabians, you can call them as well, uh, did and hope, hoped. So this is a mo- an important moment. Tomorrow and the day after tomorrow, the French president will visit Romania and Moldova. And then it will be the NATO summit, which will again be, uh, yes, we shouldn't be afraid of war, the historical decision exactly about Ukraine and uh, that part of the Eastern Europe. So we are in an important moment. And I think that uh, it will wait another 30 years if the decision will be not the ones who will really open uh, a new chapter at the end of the world. Yes, it's a, and it is a chapter who is opened, unfortunately, by dead bodies, quite a lot. I wonder if I may ask you a question. Um, One thing that we talk about pretty regularly in the podcast is the apparent split, if you will, between Eastern Europe and perhaps uh, Great Britain and the United States on one hand, and and much of Western Europe on the other hand, uh, Chancellor Schultz, President Macron, and uh, uh, President Draghi from Italy are about to visit 
Kiev, notably uh, without any other Eastern European, particularly Polish, um, members of the delegation or who will be present at the meeting. Uh, I, I suppose we're happy that the Germans are finally sending their leader to Kiev. Uh, but I wonder how you feel or how other uh, people to whom you speak feel about what, at least uh, from Washington, feels like a a growing divide within Europe, within the NATO alliance, and uh, you can't say maybe so much in the EU, but uh, between Europe and the United States and between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. So thank you very much. Uh, so uh, former Chancellor Merkel was uh, speaking about uh, in this interview which she gave uh, last week or so about why she was against accepting uh, Ukraine, uh, giving to Ukraine and to Georgia map in 2008 to the NATO summit in Bucharest. It was a summit where Putin was uh, here and after it, as we know, it started the war in Georgia. By the way, about the war in Georgia, people don't speak anymore. Right. I think that this is something which we shall have to remember. And uh, because at, for that country, it's one third of the country is not anymore controlled by Tbilisi. Can we imagine this happening in France? Could you imagine happening this in Germany or even in Belgium? <laughs> so, um, and um, yes, the um, the way the West is looking to this very complicated Europe. I must admit that I can understand poor Westerners. There are so many countries, and when Soviet Union uh, collapsed. There were so many uh, new countries, new languages, different histories, different capitals, different leaders. And then Russia, don't forget, it's still a federation. So there are also some republics who have, it's quite a complicated part of the world. So maybe the nuances don't arrive over the ocean. And unfortunately, uh, our time, it's not a time of profound debate. It's a time where the image and the shortest impression is much more important than 80, uh, 800 uh, analyzes historian books. And so this gives the the chance, a big chance to be lost in translation and to lose exactly the nuances who can make the difference at one moment between peace and war. I wonder if you could zoom in on Moldova for, for, for a few minutes. You mentioned Georgia, which does not control a part of its territory because it's under Russian occupation, famously since its inception as an independent country. Um, there was this, you know, situation in Transnistria that 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 Russia uh, controls and uses as a sort of puppet regime to 
to to to to to create regional regional um instability it wasn't that long ago that some of us on our podcast and beyond were concerned about the possibility of a full-fledged Russian attack on and takeover on Moldova using Transnistria and and the Russian presence there as a as a as a as a, as a starting point. We've seen some Russian provocations clearly uh, in, in in Transnistria that could be used as a pretext for for invasion. I think in the in the light of 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 the stalled Russian advances in Ukraine, that risk seems to be less direct. But what seems to be more direct is, um, I mean, is the sort of continuous leverage that Russia has over Moldova, for example, in the area of 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 of, of energy, where I mean, the current government, I'm told, is trying to find alternative sources. Uh, it has synchronized its electricity grid with the EU. Yes. Um, and and I just want to drop this sort of fascinating factor into the conversation, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong, but but apparently um, Transnistria accounts for one fifth of Moldova's population, and slightly over a half of the country's natural gas consumption, for which the government in Kishinev pays. Yes. Which which is just mind boggling, right? Yeah. Um, so what are the prospects? And I, I'm, I'm sure the answer is not terribly encouraging in the short term, but what are the prospects of, of, of Moldovans just, just getting out of this trap or, or, or however you want to call it, in which they really don't have much leverage in that relationship with Moscow? So, uh, Transnister was, uh, even in 1924, when it was created by the Soviet. It was an answer to the efforts of Moldova and of Romania, Great Romania, after 1918, when uh, Romania got uh, their biggest, uh, it was in its biggest size, and it was unified under one, one state. And uh, always Transnistria was created, and this is what's for me, coming back a bit to the West, this happened 30 years ago. It was not something hundreds of years ago. And from the beginning, the Russians knew why they are doing it. The conflict in Transnistria started after uh, Moldova took Romanian language as the state language, after they changed the Cyrillic alphabet to the Latin alphabet, which is in Romania, and uh, after the moment, it was recognized as a country by United Nations. So this were, from political point of view, the events would brought to the Transnistrian war. And then everything else was step by step. It was not as now uh, in Ukraine uh, after 24th of February. It was not a surprise it was, they were small clashes there and they were used by the propaganda. And then, as I was speaking with, with Julia before we started, in our part of the world, history is never past. All the time, the propaganda is bringing up things from history, obvious cut from the context. And history is always used as a propaganda tool, taking into account that people 
don't know so well the history. They don't have necessarily the skills to know exactly what happened. And so the idea is that if you are saying that you save the Transnistrian from the Romanians who, it's true, uh, were uh, aggressive during the Second World War in Transnistria and they were pogroms there and there were tragedies there. But if you don't know exactly what happened, this can be very uh, easy used as a kind of we are fighting the Nazis. And uh, this is somehow why I think that uh, uh, also the West should know a bit these nuances of what happened in this very complicated part of of the world. How Moldova will get rid of this trap in which it is in 30 years. My uh, hope is that the leaders which Moldova have now uh, are, I would say, like the leaders which the Baltic states had in the 90s. So um, Western educated, honest, and uh, really willing to turn the page. Uh, they cannot do it by themselves. That's for sure. Uh, It's very nice that um, many doors are open in terms of helping, encouraging, but I think that, and this helps a lot in terms of the image of the country and of the leaders of the country for, for the people in the country. But on the other hand, it's It's army. It's a joke. Uh, It's uh, with due respect, but they are. uh, They don't have arms. They 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 are really. And it's not because they are a neutral country. It's because they were not. uh, The leaders which were before in, in Moldova never thought that even if they had the the Transnistrian problem, that it will be another war. Everything was frozen and more or less uh, with the blessing of the West, it was a frozen thing which could be frozen for another 50 years. How was for the people in the region? That's another story. And it's interesting to say that the people in Transnistria, many of them have Russian, Moldovan, and Romanian passports. So, which is, I would say, um, everyone on its own. And this is, I would say, a kind of wisdom or life philosophy for people who saw so many things in their life, uh, in their 30 years of life, or 50, or 70, even worse. Juana pointed out a while ago that some of the people living in Moldova have actually lived through, by staying in the same house, have actually lived through four different countries, lived in four different countries. So that is a bit of a, of a, a window into how they are reacting now that um, there's not as much fear as one would guess um, because they've seen it all before. 
But um, we also talked about the fact that Transnistria so far has managed to stay out of the war. That's, we assume, because of economic interest, the heavy industries in Transnistria and the owners of that industry are um, have major economic interests and can be Ukrainian, can be Russian, can be Moldovan, can be Romanian. The problem, uh, or one of the problems as we keep looking, I guess for the first time in the West into Moldova, I remember, and I keep saying this, um, before the explosions, I was walking around in Washington, D.C. in my neighborhood, the Washington Post was on the ground and um, uh, early in the morning, and the first page was Moldova. And I think that was the first time in 30 years in Moldova's history. But as we start in the West learning about Moldova and this complicated corner of the world, what remains a total mystery, if people have even heard about it, is Gagosia. Um, that's a region in still Moldova, controlled by Moldova, with a specific ethnicity, with specific political interests, with specific foreign powers investing into, um, into the region. And um, many analysts of Moldova are pointing to this region and these people as the biggest vulnerability that Moldova now has when it comes to Russian influence and a potential coup um, or um, civil unrest um, uh, with regards, I guess, to the future of the Republic of Moldova in the West. So, Wana, can you tell us a little bit more about Gagosia? Who are these people and what do they want? So it's very difficult to, to say what they want, but I can tell you two little stories. Uh, one is, uh, okay, uh, the Turks were investing massively there. And uh, also during uh, the last years, uh, it was a project from the United Nations and uh, with uh, help of uh, uh, United States to build uh, railways uh, in Moldova. And uh, it was written that it's Millennium Challenge, and this was built uh, during uh, through this uh, project. And uh, my colleague who was going uh, into the field and was asking people, saying, wow, but look, you have such a good uh, road now, which is done with American money. And, and they said, yes, yes, that's a very good uh, road. It's, uh, but you know what? Russians are closer. Americans are far away. Russians are closer. And this is something which people are feeling. And it's helped, yes, through so many years of Soviet propaganda. And uh, Gagauzieri, even if they can speak uh, uh, Gagauz, which is a Turkish language, um, they, uh, they prefer to speak among them Russian. And they are watching Russian TV Russian propaganda and uh, this is something which uh, now I think that the authorities in Moldova are trying somehow to control it but obviously it had to be done through the democratic process 
and um, this is something which uh, sometimes it's a bit uh, complicated especially when you are coming after so many years of getting used with a kind of slogan coming from uh, from Moscow and uh, and being closer than United States even if the road is done by American men uh, okay i mean one of my ro- my role in this program is to be the sort of um, sympathetic but only slightly educated american <laughs> and it does seem to me that uh the the pile of complexities and nuances that we do try to examine on the, on the podcast um can have a simple answer meaning that absent um a western security guarantee that is effective that uh russia or you know local ethnic nationalists or you know people who just are, are corrupt and want to make mischief yet uh have so many opportunities to destabilize uh regions nations um peoples, et cetera, et cetera. The jungle grows back. Yes. Well, so uh, we've been neglectful for quite some time, but that doesn't, and, you know, it's a difficult, you know, road to to put this together, but surely in Ukraine, we see the consequences of failing to do so uh, again, second time for, for Ukraine, but also, as people were saying, in Georgia, uh, and elsewhere, it, and it would be much easier to to solve the the regional, the national. Uh, I mean, by regional, I mean small regional like Transnistria, but also large regional as well. And in the context of a, a, a viable security order, and again, it's it just also re- reminds me of how Germany and France and other Western European countries just are clearly not up to, not up to this, to this challenge. Uh, I, I'm sorry, there's no question there for, for Juana, <laughs> but I, this has just become such a, a theme that we repeat or a question that we confront so regularly. So Juana, please help me. <laughs> maybe, maybe I can slightly add on to that because I want to take advantage of Juana being a bit of a guru when it comes to media and um, and how to talk about um, these very complicated things. The truth is that here on this podcast, we're fighting for the Eastern Front to be more elevated, to, to play more of a role and to have more United States um, in it because that obviously leads and that's what people want, but it leads to security and prosperity. There's no doubt anywhere on the Eastern Front about that. But the question that that is still that we're pondering with is how to do that. How to how do you how have you wanna try to translate the complicated intricacies of Moscow's red fists and the consequences of, of, of that for American listeners and American readers to bring about the argument um, that this is for the United States, indeed, not core, it's periphery, but um, 
but it is essential for the people on the ground. You know what? If we are looking again to what happened in these 30 years, uh, what what hopes were in 89? And yes, it was a very wonderful period because we, uh, the democratic media, were together with the hopes of the people. And we encouraged and we saw that some changes really took place. It was a very... Uh, I would say, inspiring period of life. And I am very happy that I was uh, part of, of this, at least uh, for, for the job I had. But on the other hand, you are looking and you are seeing that people are tending now to look so superficial to the things because being superficial, it's easier. It's easier to go and to have a nice vacation if you don't have the burden of a historian look to the uh, to what's going on at home or near the home. I, I, I was speaking with Julia before and I was saying it's very nice that in the book fest, uh, it was a very big uh, book fair here in Bucharest, there were lots of books about Russia translated now and quite expensive I would say but lots and my question is but Russia is here since 89 and yes we were optimistically thinking that uh, it will go in the uh, uh, in the democratic fold but there were so many examples that it didn't and the answer of the West was we are deeply concerned we look with deep concern. We are concerned. We we really have uh, look with interest to what's going on. This was a kind of uh, phrase which I translated many many times, coming from the West, and this had an impact on what the relationship of people. And I'm not speaking about the elite. I'm speaking on the people in the street. The, the guy who was living in four countries in a lifetime in the same house. And they have this feeling that somehow between the Eastern Europe and the Western Europe, the gap is going wider. It's not going. And now when you are watching the debates in European Union and you have the Eastern Europeans plus the Baltic states who have one opinion and Germany, France have another one uh, or uh, Holland. So in this, in this way, you realize that basically we wanted to understand. We did our lessons. We, there are many young, educated uh, Romanians, Moldovans, uh, Bulgarians uh, who are in uh, big positions everywhere in in the West, but the gap is going wider. So somehow the bridge was not built, and it's easier for the West to look somehow to somebody to a regional power. And let's put Russia as a regional power. I don't want to live under this regional power. I want to be independent. I'm sorry, even if it will be easier. <laughs> I don't want to subcontract anything to the Russians, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, 
from the Western perspective to say, and as uh, in this interview, Angela Merkel was saying, uh, Russia is a big country and it's a regional power and we have to take into account this. And my question is, as a Romanian, Noza Moldovan, why? <laughs> it's easier. Why don't you take my point of view as well in the same with the same weight? And then they come the economical and many, 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 many other uh, issues. And when I said that at least for Moldova, it did its lesson, it means that uh, it started laws against corruption, it started uh, to reform the judiciary, it started to put, uh, really to have uh, as prime minister somebody who was graduated, who was uh, doing Harvard, to have a president graduated from Harvard, and to have a foreign minister who for the last 10-15 years was an expert in think tanks in European Union, it's the best. It's We have... Moldovans voted for the best what they could get. So well, now let's... I was going to say be- this is where things really began to go wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Too much Harvard. <laughs> so before we delve into the sort of question of expertise and whether we want to be governed by, you know, the Boston City phone book or, 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 or faculty <laughs> of Harvard, um, I, I there were just so many really important points you made. Um and, and one that resonates strongly with me is this is this notion that really like after 1989, too many people sort of assumed that history somehow proceeded on autopilot and, and, and that would sort of lead to benign outcomes. I mean, you know, there's this sort of cliche of end of history, which is used by people who haven't really read Fukuyama, but 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 there is something real there, this sort of illusion that people were sort of working under and, and just stop paying attention and in reality instead of autopilot you really get entropy and you get you know these less benign forces asserting themselves and and i I hope that 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 the west collectively has been awakened from that slumber by what happened in ukraine uh but i'm not 100 percent confident and i suppose the the real question for both eastern europeans and and people in the west is, is is okay what do we collectively do to prevent entropy, so to speak, and 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 these these you know malign forces from from asserting themselves, whether it's Russia or China or or other other revisionist powers, and and I think we need to work towards some sort of concrete agenda that 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 can be then sold to the voters, because that like nobody has really done that hard work for 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 a while we had i mean just to throw a concrete idea at you we had a conversation at aei a few days ago on you know the the prospects for you know a peace agreement in 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 ukraine and somebody a colleague who shall not be named suggested that maybe one way to proceed would be for the united states or a coalition of nato members to say well you know if if president zelensky wants to a strike a trade a peace agreement with, with 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 Russia. We should signal that we are willing to underwrite that agreement by our military presence in Ukraine. Um, it would be probably a controversial controversial proposition, but one 
that would arguably strengthen President Zelensky's position, uh, would certainly contribute to to that peace agreement being actually stable and and and, and credible going forward. Um, I mean, the question is why you have so few leaders on both sides of the Atlantic just just sort of recognizing that you need to have a far more muscular approach than the one that has been taken thus far. I was thinking that always, you know, uh, leaders are coming uh, in moments when it's important for them to uh, to raise up. For instance, nobody imagined uh, last year that Zelensky will be such a leader. Nobody imagined. And this was not because it's from the Eastern Front and it's good for us that we have, but it's really a, a leader who is inspiring also the West. And this is something which I think it's very important. Unfortunately, it is during a war. Unfortunately, people are paying with their own lives. And this is something that when people go to the table of negotiation for a peace, they have to think, to have the images or all the young people who died from both parts uh, just because of their leaders or of the mistakes of the leaders. Because here I come back and I can say, maybe in 2008, in Bucharest, maybe, if Georgia and Ukraine would have get the map, maybe that would have been a bit different. Always is like this. We are looking to the past, uh, imagining how it could have been better. The Ukrainians are giving us a second chance. Yes, yes. And they give a chance. We, we should We should take it. We should take it. Yes, not only to Ukraine but also to Moldova, also to Georgia. And that's why I am optimistic, hoping that European Union will find a solution, a very diplomatic, very handy, crafted, worthy uh, thing, <laughs> which will keep the hope for these nations. Uh, because they deserve a chance as we, the Easterners, deserved a chance in 89. Without Reagan, it couldn't have happened. Seems to me that um, we can only hope, we always do, but we hope this time particularly that the Biden administration is listening. Um, because it seems to me, even though we're not saying the words, that it does come down with all the intricacies of the Eastern Front and Western European responses, fortunately or unfortunately, it does come down to what Washington wants. Um, they can call the shots when it comes to this war in the region and further integration as they have 30 years ago. So, Juana Serafim, thank you so much for joining for talking us through the complicated issues in this little corner of the Eastern Front. We certainly hope that um, we'll have you as a guest again. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And uh, the East is good. The democratic East is very good. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a new one. That's a... <laughs> good. Always happy to conclude on a, 
cheerful note on the yeah the east is good it's good for us that's for sure well i mean the food is better <laughs> you know better than in the netherlands or much better <laughs> we didn't arrive to the discussion about how it was to the wedding <laughs> in moldova <laughs> it sounds like it was a good wedding we should we should do a separate episode on yeah. black sea cooking get, get only a hercules on the black line sea weddings Sorry, we're over from Dalbur Rohaj and Giselle Donnelly and thank you for listening to the Eastern Front a podcast dedicated to security challenges arising along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea and many thanks to our special guest today Juana Serafim you can find more episodes and additional content on our website aei.org Apple Podcasts Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag Eastern Front Pod written as one word If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and goodbye.